All right, good morning. We are, we are back to our regular time and programming, and praise God that it's our regular time because Daylight Savings is like from the pit of the darkest place that we don't want to be. I don't know how one hour can literally like have you forget where you are or like who you are. Like you wake up and you're just like, I don't even know who I am. I don't know where I am. It's this existential crisis that we're left with, but nevertheless, we made it. So I'm so glad to have you. And um, we're back into the Gospel of Mark. Uh, So if you remember, I don't know if you remember this, but we've been in the Gospel of Mark for like, I don't know, nine years or so. Uh, I forget, right? But we've been in the Gospel of Mark for the last couple years just walking through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to tackle bigger chunks over the next few weeks so that we can kind of finish where Mark does uh, with Easter. So we're going to finish on the resurrection like Mark does. And so we're going to tackle a little bit more text each week. I'll zoom in on some, some smaller stuff for us so that it's not three-hour sermons. Unless that's what you want. And in that case, email me and we'll, we'll try to work that out, okay? Uh, but being back in Mark, I'll remind you of a few things that uh, we should be reminded of. Mark's entire purpose for writing the gospel, Mark's entire biography, the whole point of the gospel of Mark is that he wants us to see Jesus. He wants us to see who Jesus is, and he wants, to, wants us to experience the good news of the gospel right, raw, right from Jesus' mouth. He wants us to understand who the true Jesus is. His big idea is to answer the question, who is this? Who is this man? And is he just a man? What did he come here to accomplish? What is his identity, and why does it matter, and why does it change everything about human history? That's what he's trying to do. Now what I love about Mark is that he's very, he's very quick, he's brief, he gets to the point. He kind of like punches at things. Whereas some of the other gospel writers, they were like, you know, a little bit more, more romantic. They love to like parse stuff out and like nuance things. And Mark's just like, I'm going to tell you some stuff. And he just gets right to it to tell us who Jesus is. Who the Jesus of history actually is. Not reinterpreted, no filters on it. Just kind of raw, organic Jesus. This is who he is. What's really interesting is all throughout the gospel, people are confused about who Jesus is. That's exactly what Mark wants to do. He wants to show us that people are perplexed by Jesus. They're they're challenged by Jesus. Some are offended by Jesus. Others detest Jesus. And he shows us, he zooms in on the different reactions through the gospel around who is responding to Jesus different ways. And what's really interesting is that the ones that recognize Jesus for who he is are not the ones that we would expect. All throughout the gospel, the very first people to recognize who Jesus is and identify him as the Messiah, Christ, God, come to humanity, are blind beggars. Are the demonized. Are the mentally and emotionally and spiritually oppressed. They're the first ones to come and identify who Jesus is. Not even Jesus' disciples identify him correctly before the most oppressed and marginalized do. And that's exactly Mark's point. That's exactly why he's doing it. You know what's crazy about the book is we go through the book and guess who never sees Jesus? Guess who never identifies Jesus for who he is? The religious elite. The ones who think they have a corner lot on righteousness and justification. The so-called Bible experts of the day who think that they're the ones that will sit in their ivory towers of theological elitism and tell people about God and what God is like. They never see who Jesus is. And that should stand out to us today. Sometimes the self-proclaimed Bible experts are not actually the ones who are truly following after God. And, and this, this is exactly what gos- the Gospel of Mark does for us. To show us that there's some upside-downness to who actually recognizes Jesus. And even more than that, not just recognizes Jesus, but who actually decides to surrender their own autonomy over their life and actually follow after Jesus, apprentice under Jesus, and be transformed by Jesus. Very upside down, very backwards compared to what we would think about the God of the universe. Now what's really cool about being on this side of history and being able to read the Gospel of Mark is, guess who knows who Jesus is right from the very first verse? We do. We get to see exactly from verse 1 who Jesus is as the hearers of the gospel. Mark 1.1, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I know this was a long time ago, but I'll just remind you really quickly, the Son of God is a title. It's not just like, oh, that's nice, that, like, good to have on your CV. Who are you? I am a son or daughter of God. You're like, okay, that's nice. But this is actually a title. 
And in the ancient world, it was a title reserved for Caesar. Caesar was the son of God. Because Caesar was to believed to be God's representation on earth. That Caesar was the son of God that represented the incarnation of the god Zeus. And Mark shows up and he goes, no. No, Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God in flesh. God is here. God has shown up. He's moved into the neighborhood. He has come to save us. Not as a son of God to sit on an earthly throne, but the son of God with a forever throne. That's the claim about who Jesus is from verse 1 of the gospel. And then all throughout the gospel, the question just hangs for us to answer. Who is this? Who is this guy? And it's an important question for us to sit with. Because how we answer that question literally changes everything. It changes how we understand morality. It changes how we understand our responsibility. It changes how we understand our vocation and what we're even here to do. It changes what we do with our body and our sexuality and our identity and our money and our lives. It changes everything. Depending on how we answer that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And that's the same question for us. It's the same question throughout the Gospel of Mark, but it's the same question that we're going to ask today. And just be careful. This is not a theological or some kind of a philosophical cute question. We've got to be very careful. Because sometimes you ask that question and right away you go to doctrinal stuff and you can just wax eloquent about theology. You can quote verses and do all sorts of theological elite things. But your heart is not answering who Jesus is. Amen? Like, so, so today, our affections need to respond to the question of who is Jesus? Who is he? And trust me, after these last couple years, there's all sorts of answers to this. There's all sorts of political and social things with the veneer of Jesus over top. We got to come back to who Jesus is. Answer it, not doctrinally, not politically, not socially, not theologically, but in the affections of our heart for our entire identity in life and eternity. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? I'm excited about that question. And we're going to ask that question, but I need us to answer it. Not your spouse, not your friend, not your neighbor, not your kids. You. You need to answer this today before we walk out those double doors and go back into the regular stuff of life. That's what we're going to answer. So Mark 11, read a few verses and see what Mark is going to do to draw our attention to that exact question. Verse 27. So they came again to Jerusalem. If you remember some of the drama that happened in Jerusalem with the temple, right? Jesus is like fresh off of turning tables over, kicking out greed and nonsense out of the, the house of God, right? So now he comes back. He's like, let's try this again. This will be fun. Because the first time went well, so let's try this, right? Comes back to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, already pretty, uh, pretty scandalous, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came, and they asked him this question. By what authority are you doing what you're doing? Who gave you the right to do this? Who gave you the authority to do these things? And Jesus, in a very Jesus-y way, refuses to play their game. And he says, no, 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 I'll ask the questions here, sweetheart. That's, that's my translation, sorry. In the Greek, it's probably there, all right? I will ask you one question, and then you will answer me. Sounds very Job-esque, doesn't it? <laughs> I'll ask the questions here, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. Was John's baptism from heaven or from man? Answer me. So, rather than answer the question, because they're not actually genuinely asking a question, they're trying to trap Jesus, they go and discuss it among themselves. They go have a conference. They go make a website. They charge registration to come and talk about this really, really important issue. They go to the side. They're like, let's talk. Let's, oh, what do you guys think? Oh, let's, uh, let's pontificate about this. Let's come back with like a really smart answer. Let's get more followers about how we, how we deal with this, right? So they go, hey, if we say from heaven, that John's ministry was from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? Ouch. But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they'll lose kind of public relations. It's bad for public relations, all right? That answer. So they answered, Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love this text so much because they come and they're not asking rightly. They're asking the right question, but with the wrong motive. You with me on that? Is that clear? 
All right? Now, we can do that. We all know people who do this. It's just like, well, I'm going to come in. I'm just, no, I'm just out of this Bible study. I'm just here to ask questions. It's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're here to mess things up. You're here because you've got an agenda. You're here because you're the most righteous person in the room, and you're going to come in and, and exegete stuff for us because you're never correctable. That's why you're here. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. What they're really asking is, who do you think you are? How dare you come in and mess up our whole thing? Because remember, the Pharisees and the scribes and the, and, the, and the priesthood is built on the ministry of the temple. And Jesus just finished showing that the ministry of the temple is not needed anymore because he's here. That's crazy. So they're messed up because their job's on the line. They've got a secret agenda that Jesus is just not playing. So his answer is beautiful because he doesn't answer their question. He asks a question as his answer. And he says, I'll ask the questions. Was John's ministry from God or from man? This is Jesus for I will not play. <laughs> okay? That's what this is. Now, why is that a big deal? At first, you're kind of like, I don't know what that means. What he just did is he set them up in a lose-lose regardless of what they say. Because if they go and say that John, if they actually legitimize John and go, yeah, his ministry and baptism was legit, what they do is that they legitimize the fact that John offered forgiveness and repentance of sin without the temple. That's why John was so radical at the time. He's baptizing people out in the Jordan River, not requiring them to go and do sacrifices in the temple. And so John shows up and he goes, don't do all of that. Don't come and work your fingers to the bone to try to get salvation. It's free. Salvation and redemption is yours if you come with a repentant heart and are baptized. That's all that is required because it, it's pinned on God and his credibility and who he is. So if they legitimize John, they literally just say that the temple is passé. And undercut their entire agenda. But, if you notice what it says, if they delegitimize John, the crowds are going to be in an uproar. Because the crowds have already been witnesses to the fact that John the baptizer's ministry is legit. Not only that, but if they legitimize John, guess who else they legitimize? Jesus. They legitimize Jesus' baptism. They legitimize everything Jesus says. Why? Because John is set up as the final prophet who will lead to the Messiah himself. And so they're overdoing a conference, having theological colloquialisms with their funny hats. And Jesus is waiting because he knows that they cannot come back and give a good answer. Sometimes humility in faith and spirituality needs to come from us not giving answers. Sometimes we need to be quiet. Sometimes we need to be still. Wisdom is a process, not knowledge and information that we attain. And right here we see that the ones who should have the wisdom of God are lacking it entirely. They've got a lot of information. They know lots of books. They write the books. But they do not know God because they don't have the wisdom of God. And that's important for us. Especially in days like today with, with the digital age and information spreading as fast as it does and misinformation spreading as fast as it does. Maybe even faster than information, right? Misinformation like gets around the world before you have a ch chance to get your pants on. Sometimes being quiet and allowing God to ask us the questions and sitting with the fact that we don't have the answers is the exact way that God will lead us to humility and save us. And they don't do that. They need to give an answer. So they come and they say, we don't know. Which is not true. They're lying. They do know. But they do know that if they answer, either way, they delegitimize themselves. They're left with their own authority being challenged. Their authority, their right to rule and have their little kingdom and their little thing and have the corner lot on religion and who's in and who's out and who's a heretic and who's woke and who's left and who's right and who's conservative and who's liberal. Like, like if they don't get to do that, no one does, so that's why they don't answer. And Jesus gets asked this question a lot. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Who gave you the right to do this? Often it'll be the crowds. Jesus will finish. Uh, like it's the black letters in your Bible, right? After Jesus will finish teaching and then you see just a quick, a quick line. And then the crowds asked, who can speak with this authority? Who can do this? Who can say the things that Jesus says? And we got to wrestle with that today. Not just those of us who are already followers of Jesus... But even those of us who are just checking Jesus out and trying to figure this out, like, well, I mean, what is the big deal with Jesus? Because either what he said makes him a narcissist to the level of insanity, 
or he truly is who he says he is. Those are the options that we are left with. And that's why the claims that he makes and the things that he does leave people saying, who can do this? Who is this? Who do you think you are? What's really great, we're going to go on a little bit of a philosophical, like, off route for a minute, okay? A little sidebar. Anybody like philosophy 101? But this is the central question of Christianity. And how we answer this changes everything. Because, here's the thing. All of us, none of us are blank slates. We all either already have an idea of who God is, okay? Or not, God just isn't, okay? So we either already have an idea of who God is and Jesus doesn't fit that. Or we have an idea of who Jesus is and God doesn't factor into that. Right? So we already have a pre-commitment to something. To a worldview, to an idea of morality and identity and purpose and destiny and future and all of that. And this, this Jesus smashes all of that and creates its own category altogether of who Jesus is. So we've got to be intellectually honest with ourselves that everybody has some version of Jesus that either does or does not align with reality. And Mark is trying to show us in the gospel reality. Jesus in the real, in the raw, who Jesus truly is. Because there's lots of versions of Jesus out there. Lots. Buddhism has a Jesus. He's an enlightened teacher, like Buddha, that leads us to nirvana. Hinduism has a Jesus. He's one incarnation of God, like Krishna. Islam has a Jesus. He's a great prophet to be respected, but inferior to the great prophet, Muhammad. Jehovah's Witnesses have a Jesus. He's the incarnation of the archangel Michael and a whole bunch of other weird stuff. New age spirituality has a Jesus. He's like a state of consciousness, man. You know, like he helps us ascend self-empowerment. He's like the, the stuff, man. Secularists and non-religious people have a Jesus. He's an interesting historical figure. Not relevant unless you kind of believe in that stuff. Right? History is like, oh yeah, historical figure, that's interesting. But only if, like only on that level. There's nothing really more than that. Now here's the problem with every single one of those things. All of these Jesuses are trying to take an existing worldview and pack Jesus into it. They're, they have an existing pre-commitment to a worldview and a belief system that's already in operation. And they're trying to slot Jesus into it. Why? Because Jesus is the center of human history. And they can't ignore him. So there's a problem there, right? If you have a whole belief system, you don't even acknowledge the center of human history. you got an issue. So they just try to slot him in and make, make, things of, think, um, make, make something of him in their already committed belief system. But the gospel biographies and history itself presents us with a different Jesus. Claims that Jesus promised, was promised for thousands of years and anticipated by history itself. That Jesus was rejected by the Jews for claiming to be God and executed by Rome for emphatically claiming to be the God become man. And possess authority that only God alone has. So we have to be really honest about this. Regardless of where you are on Jesus, checking him out, or he's just irrelevant and he's an interesting historical figure, you have to understand, Jesus was not executed and crucified for what he did. Jesus was executed and crucified for who he said he was. And it's all over the Gospels. John 5 verse 18. So that the Jews were seeking to kill him. Why? Because he made himself equal with God. And said that he was the only son from the father. That's why he's crucified. And that's the same claim that makes him the center of human history. And this is no different today in our culture. Most people, if you just talk to them, they appreciate Jesus. They'll just kind of like give you like a version of Jesus. Like, or they'll have a t-shirt like Jesus is my homeboy or, or whatever it is, right? Like, like most people, regardless of where they're at, they come from a religious background or not, they appreciate Jesus. They even respect him. They even think he's interesting or they, they maybe even give him value for something that he did or, or even just Christians have done as a result. Most people like his teaching on the ones that they know anyway. They're the ones that they'll like pick out and be like, I like this one, right? And then we put it on t-shirts and mugs. They love his example of self-giving love. They love his supposed non-judgmentalism. 
They love his heart for the oppressed when it's convenient for them or their social and political agenda. And some people even like his miracles, as long as it doesn't get too, like, Dr. Strange and magical, right? But all those same people who appreciate something about Jesus, you can almost guarantee that when it comes to his authority, when it comes to what he claimed about himself, when it comes to the exclusive claims that he made to be God, to be the way to God, to be the only one to offer forgiveness and eternal life, we have a different story. That's when the conversation will change. You have conversations, it's like, oh, Jesus, oh, cool, yeah, Chris, I, mean, I love, I love love, man. Jesus is but love, I love love. And it's like, oh, he's the only way to God. You're like, ah. <laughs> right? <laughs> we have a different conversation happening. And Mark continues to pull us back to that. So that we can't ignore it. We can't just come away and go like, I love love. I love Jesus' love. I love all that about Jesus. Except for the times that he says, I'm the way to God. That means every other way doesn't get you to God. It gets you somewhere else. This is really important. Because when it comes to his authority and his exclusive claims, we have a very different reaction. And here's what I'd say the biggest problem is with our reaction to that. When we gloss over Jesus' claims about who he is, and we reduce him to a moral teacher or a religious guru or like a flip-flop model or whatever we want to do with him. But when we reduce him to that, the problem with that is that Greek historians don't, the gospel biographers don't, the Roman Empire didn't, and neither did Jesus Christ himself. So when we do that, we are arguing a non-historical view of who Jesus is. Because what is clear, even the most honest non-Christian historian will admit, something happened. Something major happened. This Jesus was not just another religious teacher. Not just a moral kind of like soothsayer that helps us love love. There's something more going on. And this was what led C.S. Lewis of the last century to his brilliant, this is what brought him to faith, this question. And we, we call it now the C.S. Lewis's trilemma. And it's a trilemma where he gives us three options of Jesus. You can call him a liar, you can say he's a lunatic, or you can call him Lord. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says, it'll be up here for us. I'm trying to, here to prevent anyone from saying the foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. That's really important. That's not a good guy. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. That is like such a British thing of 1940, you know. That's the craziest thing C.S. Lewis could come up with. We've got crazier now, amen? (laughs) Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Listen to this. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up, come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He never intended to. Now, why do we struggle with this? Why do we come up with explanations of this? Why do we explain it away? Two reasons. We'll do these quickly. Then we'll get back into the text and apply some things. First reason why we struggle with this authority claim is that we always have. Okay, if there's anything true about the story of the Bible is that the story of the Bible is a story of authority and power turning in on itself and being misused and abused and it destroying everything. That when authority and power is in the right place, there is order and goodness and fruitfulness and multiplication. But when it is flipped in on itself and there is an exploitation of power and authority, it only destroys and leads to chaos and darkness. I don't have to convince anyone of that. We know that. Look at the news. We know that. But that is exactly the story of the Bible. Right from the garden, in the book of Genesis, we see this exact story playing out. The human problem, the human condition in the garden is not just moral. 
That's not morality. It's not that we need to kind of like do better. Not primarily. It's not religious that we need to believe better. And it's not intellectual that we need to know better. The condition that we see in scripture all the way across is that we are broken relationally. That we have a cosmic authority twisting in ourself. And that we go and give ourself over. We authorize non-gods to rule over us as if they are God. That's the sin problem. That's the condition that leads to moral and, and spiritual and intellectual brokenness from there. The Bible speaks less of sin as like doing bad things. I know we like to like play that up. It leads to bad things, no doubt. But the Bible speaks less of sin as doing bad things and more as settling for good things. As authorizing non-gods to actually be the ruler of our lives. And rather than live life dependent on God, we choose independence from God. We choose self-rule over God's rule. That is the story of Genesis 1 through 11. It's when we define what is good and right and true and beautiful in contrast to what God defines as right and good and true and beautiful that we see this cosmic authority problem crop up. And the result, well, we know. We know the story of the Bible. You know the story of your week. <laughs> it dethrones God and it enthrones self. Self is the autonomous arbiter of truth and rightness and goodness. We don't turn outwards for that anymore. We turn inwards for that. And that's the human heart condition all throughout Scripture. The Bible showcases this. History showcases this. It's when we choose self-rule over God's rule that we think it's freedom from God that will lead us to freedom, but freedom from God actually leads us to slavery. And that's what we see. Now today it sounds a little different because we don't use that language. Today it sounds like do you. And live your truth. And slay queen. And get it. And like it just it shows up in like cute things. But when you really unpack... Like, unpack, really, what is going on there. That's all it is. The self-empowerment, self-actualization, and frankly, the self-authorization of me being king, queen, and lord over my life. That's what it is. So it sounds different, but it's not different. So I know we got to be careful. Some of our cultural crusaders, all of us who need, like, a boogeyman to fight, which is like, oh, culture so dark. Look at us. Oh, culture. We used to be so, like, the golden age. That's what we need to get back to. It's like, you've lost your mind. Just because you're uncomfortable doesn't mean there was a golden age we need to get back to. History repeats itself. It's cyclical. Like maybe we're feeling it culturally in different ways and it's manifesting itself. Yes, of course. Do we need to speak truth to that? Yes, we do. But don't come up with this like, oh, we've never seen this. It's unprecedented. It's not unprecedented. Read your Bible. It's all over. The Read Romans 1, for goodness sake. It could be a tweet today, right? Like, so be careful not to like, I mean, villainize history in our moment so that we can come up with a boogeyman that we can go and like shoot guns at and go and fight. Our battle's done. We already have victory. We're already free and bought for and paid for and redeemed and rescued. We're already. So let's live that out instead of going after boogeyman and culture. Amen? All the cultural warriors are like, oh, not amen. I don't like that one. My favorite atheist, Thomas... Nagel, he's old, he's still alive, I think, but he's old. Um, philosopher, I, I, love, I love honest atheism, or just intellectually honest atheism. He's my favorite. But somebody says, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people that I know are believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that my belief is right, I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is, listen to this, is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. Like you just preach the bad news that needs the good news of the gospel. Like right there. Like that is literally the human condition. We don't read atheists though. We only read Christians. Really? Cool. 
This cosmic authority problem is not rare, and he's right. It's not rare. It's the condition of all of our hearts. It's the condition of our culture. It's the condition of humanity. And this cosmic authority problem is showcased page after page, century after century. And the Bible shows up and it says, true freedom is not found in a ta- true freedom is not found in self-authorizing what you, what you deem to be worth your life, but that freedom is actually found in surrender to the God who gave you life. That's number one. Second philosophical detour. Why do we struggle with this? Why do we struggle with this authority thing? Well, we're culturally conditioned because we're great-grandchildren of the Enlightenment. We got to remember where we are in history, okay? 17th, 18th century changed everything about what we believe about knowledge, about what we believe about reason, about what we believed about objective reality and subjective opinions. It changed everything. Now, it's the air we breathe, so you don't even know. Like, you don't know the air you breathe until someone chokes it out of you. Are you with me on that? Right? Like, it's like, like, you don't actually think about the air you're breathing all day, and someone comes and goes like this, and you're like, I need the air, right? But that's exactly it. Culturally, we breathe the air of postmodernism. We breathe the air of post-enlightenment. Immanuel Kant, who was the poster boy of the Enlightenment, said things like, religions are subjectively helpful, but not objectively true. I mean, is that not just like the teleprompter of our culture? Yeah, they can be helpful. Like, like, have your belief, but they're not objectively connected to reality in any way. He also said things like, have the courage to use your own understanding in the pursuit of truth. So what does that do? Well, that takes objective truth out there and puts it back into our lap and says, have your understanding be the thing that dictates what's true. Does it sound familiar? Of course it does. This is the cultural water that we swim in. So the Enlightenment gave us this idea of like, well, be the authority over what is true and what is right and what is good. That's where goodness comes from when we're as free as possible from internal restraints and external ones. That we can just authorize for ourselves what is right, good, true, and worth our life. So, what happens? Well, today we see individualism and autonomy are just rampant. Our, our, our chief cultural virtue, special experts say, is individualism and autonomy. They're our highest value. To suggest that decisions, values, and morals for someone different than what they already hold to, isn't a matter of opinion. It's not like being helpful. It's actually an attack on their character. It's actually a violation of their human right to even suggest that what they think is true might be wrong or disconnected from reality. Now that I've said that out loud, pay attention this week. You'll see it everywhere. It's not just a helpful, like, maybe think about it this way. It's a violation of them as a human being. And it came from this post-enlightenment thinking. Charles Taylor, um, McGill philosopher, retired now, says, this is the culture of our day. Here's here's how he wraps it up. This is kind of the sermon of the culture. Let each person do their own thing. One shouldn't criticize others' values because they have a right to live their own life as you do. The only sin which is not tolerated today is intolerance of another way that someone chose. That sums up our culture. We live self-authorized lives. We determine morality and destiny and purpose for ourselves. We determine values for ourselves, not based on what's going on out here, but based on what's going on in here. And you do it. And I do it. And we all do it. And one key byproduct of this issue here is something called pluralism. Pluralism teaches us that there is no one right way to understand religion. Okay? So it's not, there's no one right way. To understand religion or a way to God. There's different paths up the same mountain. There's different like puzzle pieces. Maybe some religions have pieces of the truth and you put all those babies together and then you have the truth. You have like a a truth puzzle, right? And then like, you know, in eternity future, like we walk into like the multi-faith room of heaven and then like stained glasses has all like the religious symbols on it, right? That's pluralism. That's what pluralism teaches. Pluralism breaks down in lots of ways, and we won't spend too much time, but in in effect, pluralism teaches us that there's no one way to understand God except the way that pluralism tells us to understand God. So you see how, get your philosophy brain on for a second, right? See how it just now saws off the branch it's sitting on? By saying there's no exclusive claims to be made about God, it's making an exclusive claim about God. So right away we run into some issues there. 
in an effort, and it's a, it's, a, it's a good effort. Pluralism tries to answer things the right way. Like, it really does. Try to answer the right questions. But in an effort from keeping one religion from claiming to know the way, pluralism knows the way by seeing all ways and dismissing all of them equally. <laughs> That's what pluralism does. Historian and New Testament scholar Oprah Winfrey says it this way. One of the biggest mistakes we make is to believe that there is only one way. There are many ways, many paths to what you call God. You see what Oprah just did there? See the bait and switch? That there's, no, there's not one way except for the way that I'm about to tell you. Now buy my O magazine and subscribe to my TV station, right? Talladega Nights is another funny example where Ricky Bobby, the race car driver, crashes and he's on fire and he's running around outside of his car and he says, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jewish God. Which is ironic. Right? Help me, Allah. Help me, Tom Cruise. Use your witchcraft on me to get this fire off of me. Help me, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. And that is the culture of our day. It's just like, we don't really pay attention in any deep way to any of these questions until things get really bad and we're on fire. And then we just throw a hail everything up there, right? We're just like, anyone. Chakras, cosmos, Oprah, Buddha, like it's just like, I'll just, I'll pray to every God, just, just as long as you get me out of this baby, right? That's our culture. Now it sounds so inclusive. It sounds so tolerant. It's like, yeah, well, that, wouldn't that lead to world peace? It sounds so good. The problem is it's self-refuting and it actually doesn't lead to peace at all. Pluralism claims that specific beliefs about God aren't important by arguing for a specific belief about God. So, don't miss it. Practically for you and I, here's why this matters. Don't miss that accepting all ways is still a way. You with me? Rejecting all ways is still choosing a way. So it's not as tolerant and all like embracing as it sounds. It's just a cute way to get around it. It's a cute way to say that we're not being exclusive in our belief systems, but everyone is exclusive in our belief systems. The point is that if we reject Jesus' exclusive claims to authority... It's because we've exclusively embraced pluralism. So, let's get back to this. With that as the backdrop for us, understanding culturally what's going on in the water, uniquely, Jesus shows up and takes himself right off of the shelf for pluralists. He doesn't even leave himself on the shelf as one option among many. He shows up and he takes himself right off of the pluralist shelf and claims to have all authority. All of it. Like not some in his cultural context, not some during the historical period he lived in, not, not some authority because he offers some view of God, but he shows up and says, I have all authority and I am God. Jesus didn't come with words about God. He came claiming to be the word of God. Other religious leaders have shown up over history and, and said, I'll show you a way to find God. Jesus shows up and says, I am God, come to find you. That's radically different, amen? That's radically different. And we need to wrestle with that. We need to be intellectually honest about that. He takes himself off the pluralist shelf, claims to have authority to forgive sin, claims that he's pre-existent. Did you ever catch that one? Pre-existent. Just like, yeah, so before Abraham was, I was. I am. Which is a divine title. He's like, before Abraham was, I'm God. Everyone's like, what? Okay, like he's pre-existent for goodness sake. I don't even remember anything like before it's 17. Let alone being pre-existent, right? He claims to have power over death. He claims to be the source of all truth. He claims that to know him is to know God. He claims that to see him is to see God. He claims that to accept him is to accept God. And even throughout Mark, he's telling storms to stop and they listen. Try that. Try it. Like, try the, like the snow. Just be like, snow. Cut it out. Blizzard. Blizzard immediately. <laughs> Just to show you that you are not this, right? Like he's telling storms to stop, and they're listening. He's telling the Pharisees that, he's telling the Pharisees on the Sabbath that they don't need the Sabbath because he himself is rest. Like, like he's, he's freeing people from mental, spiritual, and emotional bondage because even powers that we don't understand listen to him. Like that's Mark's point in all of that. And this is why 
The Christian message is good news, church. This is why the message of Jesus is called the gospel. This is why it's good news. Because Jesus alone can rescue us from this problem within. Jesus alone has all authority over anything that you are wrestling with right now. Like, like today, like this week, this year, these last two years. If he has all authority, guess what that means functionally? That he can do anything with anything that we're struggling with. This does matter. This is functional. This isn't just philosophy out here. This is functional in our lap right here. That Jesus himself can reverse the cosmic authority problem in our heart and free us from the entrapment of self-rule. Amen? He can do that. And he does. And many of us are here because he has. But he's not done. God is not done. He's not finished doing that. His work continues to free you and, uh, uh, you and me from this cosmic authority problem and then send us out as free people to go and offer that to other people because it's good news. Because there's so much bad news out there. So much. Here's the good news. Listen, Christianity is exclusive in what it teaches. It is. You can't get away from it. But it's inclusive in who it's offered to. Is that not beautiful? It's exclusive in what it is, but it's all-inclusive to who it belongs to. Jesus invites all people, anyone, come to me, all of you who are tired. Anybody tired? Anybody carrying heavy burdens? Anybody weary? Anybody beaten down? Anybody heavy? He's talking to you. Come to me and I will give you rest. I'll take that off of your shoulders. I will free you from it. You don't have to take it. You don't have to self-authorize. Come to me. I will give you rest. Let me teach you because I'm humble and I'm gentle. And you will find rest for your soul. Deeper than just physical rest. You'll have rest for who you are. So don't miss it. <laughs> the gospel's not scandalous because of who it excludes. The gospel's scandalous because of who it includes. Because it includes you. And me. Like, like if we're humble enough to sit with that, there's no one God can't save. But it's when we create these like elitist nonsense categories so that we like prop ourselves up on self-righteousness and we self-authorize ourselves of like, well, I will decide who's in. No, you won't. Can't even remember to floss your teeth. You won't decide anything. Gospel is scandalous because it's good news for everyone. It includes anyone who will respond. And that's why legitimizing John the Baptist's ministry is bad news for the Pharisees. Because they're acknowledging that a whole bunch of dirty people just bypassed the temple and went and got baptized in a river and they're in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is like, that's what I'm about. We're going to bypass all this religious nonsense and I'm going to bring people out and I'm going to save them myself. That's what he still wants to do. Everyone, all walks of life, anyone who's struggling with any kind of anything, who recognizes who Jesus is, abandons their pursuit of independence from God, and starts to follow after him, we're promised that they're saved. It's amazing. So, what does this look like? Well, to follow Jesus is not just like, well, I like his teachings, and yeah, okay, I'll acknowledge that he's God. That's a big deal. But to follow Jesus is to live under the authority of Jesus, amen? That's what following Jesus means. That we actually live under the authority of Jesus. That he has all rights and privileges. Like, you know, when you go to the website, it's like, do you give us privileges to basically read all of your personal information? And you always click yes. Always. And now Mike Zuckerberg's like, <laughs> okay. That's this. It's just like, now I give you all rights. There's nothing off, like out of bounds. There's nothing off limits in my life. I don't hold back, like, morality. I don't hold back politics. I don't hold back social views. I don't hold back my sexuality. I don't hold back any of that. It's all on the table now because I'm under the authority of King Jesus. And then he, I'm trusting him with all of that. He gets to rearrange all of that. He gets to speak on what to do with that. What I do with my time, my energy, my money, my body, my future, my present. He gets to decide that. And the beautiful thing about that is that he's not demeaning He's not coercing subjects into submission. He's coming to serve and invite all people into his upside-down kingdom of mercy and grace. That's the gospel. That's this. 
rightly understood, Jesus' authority shouldn't be shied away from. And I know there's a lot of abuse of authority. And, it's, and it hurts. It's traumatic. And rightfully, it's painful. But Jesus' authority should actually fill us with hope. Because there's nothing outside of his power. Does that make sense? That should actually fill us with hope. The thing that you're struggling with right now, that person you're praying for, or that you're married to, <laughs> that health problem, that challenge, that fear, that insecurity, all of those things. The authority of Jesus and him having all authority gives us hope. It gives us peace because we can hand that over to him. To follow Jesus is to surrender our authority and authorize him as Lord over every area of our life. And for some of us, we've doctrinally done that. And functionally, we have not. And it shows. Your life is not infused with surrender and submission to King Jesus. It's not. You can like, you can like say a bunch of stuff about it. That's cute. But functionally, your life is not conditioned by Jesus being authorized as Lord. So today, I would say, this is our time. I know we're back to kind of like a rhythm, God willing, that, that we'll be able to continue and be consistent with. But maybe today is, is us coming back to that. To, to really a heart of worship, true surrender and submission to who Jesus is. Because this is functional. Day to day, listen, if you pay attention, day to day, who actually holds authority in your life? Mostly. It's you. It's you. Or it's some condition cultural view or it's some social or political issue or whatever. There's been so much talk over the last couple years about everything other than Jesus from Christians. I'm just like, what? Why are we not talking about Jesus? Well, but the Psalms says this. It's like, yeah, but you just use Psalms to say what you want it to say. What about Jesus? This is a functional thing. Day to day, who holds authority in your life? Who calls the shots? Who influences the decisions you make? Who sets your priorities and values? Who tells you what to do with your money, your time, your attention, your, your, your relationships, what you do and don't do, where you are and where you aren't. And I think this is exactly why, and here's where we'll wrap up because we're over time. What else is new? Welcome to Reach Montreal. But here's where we'll wrap up, okay. This is why Jesus finishes with a parable. We won't read it. We don't have time. Read it this week. He finishes with a parable. In chapter 12, he finishes with a story because he wants this to burn into their head. Like he wants them to understand the point of this. And the parable is interesting because usually parables are like more invitation than information, right? We did a whole series on parables. I don't know when, a few while ago. I lost track of time. But story, like parables are small, like short stories that are more invitation into the kingdom of God than it is information. But it's supposed to be there as a handle to understand it. And he tells this parable about a vineyard. And he says, well, a man, an owner plants a vineyard and he sends a bunch of tenant farmers to go work it. And then that man sends a bunch of servants to go and check on what's going on on the fields. Are they actually doing a good job and to collect the harvest. Every time the owner sends a servant to go and check it out, what do they do? Well, the farmers kill him. They kill him and they beat him and or they send him away. So the owner's like, what are they doing? Okay, I'll find him. I'll send my son. I'll send my son. Because, I mean, he's my son. He represents me. He's literally my image. He's going to go. He'll convince them to cut it out and we'll get an idea of what's going on in the harvest of that field. And the son shows up and what do they do? They kill him. Because their thought is, if we kill him, we'll get the inheritance. We'll be in charge. Jesus tells this story. All over the Old Testament, Israel was a vineyard. And the servants who are sent by the owner of the vineyard is God sending prophets. And he sends prophet after prophet after prophet to call people to himself. And they kill them and reject them and deny them. And then God finally sends his son and we do the exact same thing. The difference is, he doesn't need to send anymore. Because his son told death it wasn't allowed. The son is the one that actually comes to serve all those wicked servants in the field. Who think that what they have belongs to them. And that's the point of the story. That's the point of the parable. Is that if you think that what you have belongs to you, you're already off on the wrong foot. And Jesus finishes and says... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's inviting all of us to make him the cornerstone of our life. The very foundation. If nothing we have actually belongs to us, church, it means that we'll answer for how we use what we've been given. Just like the vineyard doesn't belong to you. Your stuff doesn't belong to you. Your sexuality doesn't belong to you. 
Your talents, your time, your money, your energy does not belong to you. You are not self-authorized. But the good news is that you've been given it to manage under the good, perfect, beautiful authority of the king. That's why he finishes with that story. Okay, so we're going to respond now. We're going to sing. But before we do that, before we jump into that, I want us to ask the question of what do you need to surrender this morning? Before we jump into singing, we're just having a minute to pray and answer that question. What do you need to surrender? How can you authorize Jesus as Lord over something that you haven't? What does that look like today for you? How can we lay more down at his feet so that he can be the one to have authority and be the king and Lord and God over our life? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang out at the back. If you want to be prayed for, if you have something you want to pray in particular, please come see me. I'd love to pray with you. But we're going to surrender this morning. And we're going to surrender because it's free. And we're going to walk out of here free. More free than when we came. We're going to walk out of here more full than we came. We're going to walk out of here authorizing Jesus as Lord and acknowledging him for who he truly is. So let's let him rearrange us in our heart this morning. Let me pray for us to that end. Lord, you don't um, abuse your power and your authority. You steward it perfectly. You are good and you are beautiful. And you're the point. You're the alpha and the omega. You're the beginning and the end. Everything points back to you. It's when we acknowledge that, that we're humbled by who you are. I pray for each of us. We know. We know what these areas of our life are. We know how we have not actually made you day to day the Lord, given you authority. I pray that, that today would just be a new start, just a fresh place for us to lay those things down and to walk away free and then to follow after you. And that day to day as we repent, as we turn away from that cosmic authority problem within that you would infuse us with life that can only come from you. And we pray this not just for us, but we pray it that for, for all of the people that we have influence over, our neighbors, our, our family members, our friends, our coworkers, our city, that there would be many more that come to see you as not useful, but beautiful. And that many more would come to bow a knee and surrender their lives to you, to see you as the only one that can give life. So now as we just take a minute to be silent, be quiet before you, Pray, Spirit, that you would convict us, that you would speak to us, that you would compel us, and then you would fill us and send us out of here different than the way that we came, that it would be done for your name, by your power, and for your glory. Thank you.